Welcome to Cross Defense. Happy Monday afternoon. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, your host for the next hour, where we talk about curious theology that excites the imagination and comforts the conscience, reminds us of the joy of theology. I'm convinced more than ever that one of the dangers that we face from the devil is the danger of boredom. I, I, I wouldn't, in fact, that, this is something, something very interesting to think about. We, oh, the devil always is tempting us to be bored with the good things in life. Uh, by the way, I'm pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. So if, if you're ever hanging around Aurora, Colorado, come and, and visit us. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll be uh, glad to see the people here rejoicing in the Lord's Word. That, there's some joy that we're supposed to have in the Lord's Word, but the devil's always tempting us to be bored. He tempts Christians to be bored with the Bible. He, tips, he, he tempts the confirmants to be bored with the catechism. He tempts pastors to be bored with the doctrine or whatever. To, he tempts, you've seen this before, right? He, he tempts, the devil tempts husbands and wives to become bored with one another. I mean, here's this person that's giving their, giving their life to you. And this person is, is incredibly unique and wonderful, created by God full of so much love and wonder and and we're sharing this life together and now the devil comes along and tempts us to be bored to not even notice that they're there uh, how much how much trouble happens in marriage and in, in with husband and wife simply because the devil has succeeded in making one of the couple bored with the other and then someone comes along who's more excited about them and and now they they the, the things just start to go off the rails like this so the devil he the devil works in our delight and he works in two ways always the devil is working in two ways he tries to he tries to tempt us by adding false doctrine and taking away the truth by by taking oh, stealing away god's word and adding his own word by by adding desire for something that we shouldn't have and taking away the desire and the delight and the things that we should have so the devil's always working to steal away our delight and our joy our comfort and our peace in the lord's word do you see do you see that so that we we fight against the devil when we simply make the make the acknowledgement or make the statement that god's word is exciting it's beautiful it's wonderful it's lovely there's these three things, the, the transcendentals, the good and the beautiful and the true, that they, oh, this is ancient. It was like, I think, I remember trying to track this down one time, like, like Plato mentions the good, the beautiful, and the true, like their old hat, like they've been talking about it for centuries. So it's, this goes way back, these three things, the good, the beautiful, and the true. And I think sometimes we're tempted in the church, especially in more conservative denominations, like ours, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Center, we're tempted to think of the of the true we have the true doctrine we have the truth of the lord's word the lord's word is true and errant and fallible that that's right we should think of these things we think of the true every now and again we think of what's good compared to what's bad or what's evil but very rarely do we think about that what's beautiful what's wonderful what's delightful but the lord's word is all three it's good and it's beautiful and it's true in fact jesus is all three he is the truth, he is the good, and he is the most beautiful thing in all of creation, especially when we see him dying on the cross for our sins, shedding his blood to, to atone for us. And so we want to we be able to say to the world, and so I'm saying it to you, and, but I'm saying it to you so that you can not only hear it, but you can say it to those people around you, so that you can say to them, hey, uh, the, the scriptures are beautiful. The truth of the Lord's word is beautiful. Jesus is beautiful. His love for us is beautiful. It's wonderful. It's delightful. 
so we can excite the imagination with that sort of thing. That's what we want to do here on Cross Defense. And to that end today, we're going to do a Bible study. Now, I was all ready to do a Bible study on Revelation 20, and then I remembered that I promised the people on the Facebook last week that we would talk about Epicureanism. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about Epicureanism, and then we're going to talk about Revelation 20 and the Millennium. And then at the end, we're going to see if those two things have anything to do with each other. Now, I actually don't think that they do, so, but we'll see, we'll see if we get to the end. Uh, we'll see if those two things are, are related at all. So first, uh, we'll talk about Epicureanism. Now, what you ask, Pastor Wolfmiller, what the heck is Epicureanism? What are you talking about? What, I've got no idea what that word even means. Well, remember when Paul, St. Paul, uh, went to Athens. It was in his second missionary journey. He wanted to go to Ephesus. It looks like that he really wanted to go to Ephesus. But instead of being able to go to Ephesus, uh, he, he ended up, they, the Holy Spirit prevented him. And so he goes up in Troas, and he's, he's on into Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, down to Berea. Then he goes down to Athens. And for a while in Athens, he's by himself, and he's walking around, and he's looking at all the things that there are to see in Athens. And in, in fact, he notices all these statues and gods and temples and everything else like this. And when you're in Athens, it's still that way. Athens is a city, but it's built around this Acropolis, this, this rock outcropping. And you have the Parthenon and all these temples to Nike and Athena and everything up on top of this big hill that's there. And then and then kind of down the slope from the hill, there's this big uh, hill, this big rock, and it's called Mars Hill. And the Athenian people would go there, and they would debate. They'd have these philosophical conversations. Now, now just to sort of, with that stage set, I, w- I want you to imagine this, that you would go to Athens in the day of St. Paul. So say you're there in the year 40 or so, uh, after the death of Jesus, 42, 52, somewhere right in there, you go to Athens and you say, well, what, what are they going to be talking about? What philosophers are they going to be talking about? And we might say, well, maybe they're talking about Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or something like this. But, uh, but it turns out that there was two philosophies that were dominating the imagination of the people in Athens, and I'd suggest that they were dominating the mind of the entire Roman Empire, and I'd go even further to suggest that these two philosophies are the two philosophies that will tend to dominate the mind of all people. And it says it right there in Acts chapter 17. It says that the Epicureans and the Stoics were there debating with each other, and they just sat around waiting to hear something new. So you have these two major philosophical schools. Now, this is maybe a surprise for us that have studied philosophy because we're like, well, where are the Platonists? Where are the Aristotelians? Where, where are those guys? How come they're not there on the hill? And I think it's because those guys had sort of a pure philosophy, but, it, but it's Epicurus and the Stoics who had Zeno, to, who started that school, who had taken some philosophy and had made it practical. So it really stands out for us that the Epicureans and the Stoics are sort of are sort of practical philosophies, and the practical philosophies are going to win the day. Now Christianity comes into the mix of this fight of Epicureanism and Stoicism, and it finds when Ep- with Epicureanism almost a pure foil. All, everything about Epicureanism, they say that is wrong. Whereas with Stoicism, they say, well, you got some good stuff over here, and you have some bad stuff. But but this thing of Epicureanism was there, and and now what what happens is in the in the kind of cultural conversation, Christianity for I would say twelve hundred seventeen hundred years has really 
buried Epicureanism. But what we're starting to see in our own day is the rise. I mean, it's been happening for a couple of centuries, but the rise of Epicureanism, which is why this thing matters. I think that if you understand Epicureanism, you can understand a lot of the cultural conversation that happens around us these days. So let's talk about it. Now, I am no history of philosophy, so you'll have to endure my sort of layman's approach to these things. If you have, um, by the way, if you want to jump in on this conversation, I would really invite you to do so. You can tweet at KFUO Radio. Uh, you can do that. You can call in. Oh, where's the number? You can call in the secret number, which I don't have. Oh, here it is. You can call in at 800-730-2727 uh, and join this conversation as well. Uh, you can tweet at me, at B. Wolfmuller, but I never check it, so it won't do you much good. Now, Epicure Epicurus was an old guy. He was a philosopher. He was studying the old philosophies. But Epicurus had decided, he had come to the conclusion, that the worst of all evils is pain, uh, to be troubled, to be disturbed. So Epicurus said that we ought to pursue a life without disturbance, a life with, without pain. And as Epicurus thought about these things, he determined that there was two things above all else that caused the most trouble in human life. Now, this is amazing because he's not going to say like, like processed sugar or he's not going to say even a moral evil, Epicurus is going to conclude that the two things that cause the most trouble in human life are doctrines. They're, it's teachings. It's understandings of the world. And Epicurus said that the two things that caused the most trouble in life were, number one, the idea that the gods intervene. Remember, we're talking about ancient Rome, so they didn't just talk about one god. They talked about hundreds, maybe thousands of different gods, and the idea that the gods would intervene, that Zeus would strike you with a bolt of lightning or that Mars would cause you trouble or whatever. That idea caused us a great amount of trouble because we thought that the gods would be mad at us if we do bad or we would try to appease the gods to make them do right by us, to get advantages from them and, and that sort of thing. So the number one thing Epicurus said was troubling to humanity was the idea that the gods intervene. And number two, the idea that there's an afterlife. And especially the idea that there's an afterlife that has a judgment involved in it. That, that you can die and then you have to go to heaven or to hell. To, to, to some sort of bliss or some sort of horrible afterlife. Epicurus said that those two doctrines were the thing that caused the most anguish in our human living. And therefore, said Epicurus, interestingly, we have to live as if those two doctrines are not true. Let me say that again. Epicurus was not arguing that the gods don't intervene or that there's not an afterlife. That wasn't his argument. He was arguing that because those doctrines cause so much distress, it doesn't matter if they're true or not. If we're pursuing the good, we have to live as if they don't matter. Now, I think it happened that Epicurus didn't actually believe that the gods were involved in the world. Maybe there were gods, but that they weren't involved, and he didn't believe in a judgment after death. But for him, it didn't matter what was, what was true or what was false. What mattered was what was most of the, uh, what had the best practical implications. Now, another interesting thing about this Epicureanism is that it, it stands in stark contrast to the famous statement of Karl Marx. Remember Karl Marx? who said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Re religion is the drug 
that we take, this was Marx's idea, religion was the drug that we take to make this miserable life worth living, that we are, we're kind of hyping ourselves up by believing in the things that are false, that there is a God, that he does intervene, that there is an afterlife, that there's heaven after this life. Marx said all of that stuff is like an opiate. It's a, it's a drug that we use to make life easier. Now, Epicurus had it right, the opposite of that, that the doctrine that the gods intervene or that there is a God that intervenes and that there's an afterlife doesn't make things better in this life. It, it makes things more difficult. If there's a God, after all, then there's someone that I have to be accountable to. If, there's a, if, there's, if, if God intervenes in this life, then i got to be careful. I can't just live how I want to live. I can't pursue the things I want to pursue. I, I'm held to a higher standard. So the idea of God and the idea of right and wrong and the idea of judgment is a burden that we bear. And Epicurus said, let's cast it off for the sake of minimizing human trouble. Now, this idea of Epicurus... The idea that life should be lived that we, so that we minimize human trouble, it got expanded in a number of different ways. And the most famous apologist for Epicurus was a guy named Lucretius, who was a, a couple centuries after Epicurus, and he wrote some poems that really made Epicureanism popular. He's the one that allowed, he, he, who, who had the creed of Epicureanism, which is let, let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. And, and you see in that little phrase sort of the embodiment of the, of the shape that Epicureanism would take. Instead of just uh, uh, pursuing a lack of pain, Lucretius said we should pursue a maximum experience of pleasure. Now, these are the two sides of the coin of Epicureanism. Ian is saying that I have three minutes left. Someone should call and tell him to give me more time. We need more time on this radio show. Ha! <sighs> We're just getting started with Epicureanism. We've still got to do Revelation 20. All right, you guys, stick with me. We'll go fast here. That uh, the, 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 there's two sides of the same coin. The one is that we live to maximize pleasure, and the other is that we live to minimize pain. But both of them are saying that the most important thing is pain. The most important thing in this life, that the worst evil is pain or the highest good is pleasure. Either way, it puts, it puts that at the very top, and, we're, and our lives are going to be manifest in a worship of this thing, pleasure or pain. So that we see a, a sort of hedonistic Epicureanism when people say that you only live once, that you have to live it up, that we live our lives for the maximizing of pain or for the minimizing of pleasure. Now we see this show up. Now watch, this is what I, wanna, I want you to think about, why we're talking about it. Because we see Epicureanism showing up as the rationale for all sorts of cultural conclusions that are being made in our day. So, so for for example you see it you, you see it um uh, you see it when people die you you know how this goes when people uh when when you hear of the you hear of the death of a loved one and people say well at least they're not suffering anymore as if suffering was the was the highest of all evils and an end of suffering becomes the highest of all goods you you hear this in the background of the argument about abortion pro choice or pro or pro life what kind of life would the person have would the mother have with an unwanted pregnancy would the would the child have if they lived a life that would they that they were unwanted in and and it becomes about what would life be if it had so much pain it's better to have no life than a life full of pain
This came up just in Colorado this last year. We had the whole fight about a physician-assisted suicide, and this is the thing that sits behind all of these conversations, is what kind of, what kind of pain is a person suffering? It's a reason now to, to kill someone or to let someone in their life if they're suffering this irretractable pain. So that, so that the, the Epicurean idea that pain is the worst of evil and that pleasure is the highest of goods sits behind all of our cultural conversation. Now, this then is something at least to be recognized so that when we're arguing something like, hey, there's something, there's a greater good than pain, there's a, there's, or than pleasure, there's a greater evil than pain. When we argue something like that, we have to know that that's not going to make sense with the people that we're talking to, not most of them, because Epicureanism has, without even being identified, has captured the imagination of our culture. So there's a too brief introduction to Epicureanism uh, here on Cross Defense this afternoon. I hope it's helpful. If it is helpful, let me know. You can send me a note at B. Wolfmuller on the Twitter. You can send the, the, the KFUO Studio a note there at KFUO Studio on Twitter. You can call in and give me your thoughts, 800-730-2727. We're, I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller here on Cross Defense. We'll go to the break. We're going to make this as fast as possible, and we're going to be back on the other side to dive into Revelation 20 and the millennium and talk about different ideas about what that passage means and see if we can understand it and see what it means for us. So stay tuned for that. I'll be with you in just a few minutes here on Cross Defense. Hi, this is Pastor Mark Azil, the LCMS Director of Campus Ministry and the Chancellor of LCMSU inviting you to join us right here on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the Student Union. If you can't make it, Student Union is always available as a podcast at kfuo.org. Learn more about LCMSU at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on KFUO. Hi, I'm Jay Ashcroft. Here at the Secretary of State's office, we take the integrity of our elections seriously. Missourians agreed and passed Constitutional Amendment 6. Missouri's new photo ID law is now in effect. Have questions about the new voter ID law or need to register to vote? We're here to help. Visit showittovote.com or call 866-868-3245. Remember, if you're registered to vote, you can vote. Sponsored by the Missouri Secretary of State's Office. I'm Gary Duncan, the General Manager of Worldwide KFUO. We promote our various programs. We ask you to listen to your favorite show. We ask you to support our broadcast ministry, and we thank you for that support. But maybe we don't ask you to pray for us as much as we should. Please pray for the staff, management, radio hosts, and volunteers here at Worldwide KFUO. Pray that the message of salvation through Christ is heard clearly by listeners around the world. Pray that we continue to reach into those areas that are hostile to the Word of God. Pray that KFUO continues to reach those people desperately needing to hear the good news message. And pray that God continues to bless us financially through the gifts we need to continue our broadcast ministry. Thank you for listening, supporting, and praying for Worldwide KFUO. You truly are appreciated. We are the messenger of good news. AM 850 in St. Louis, worldwide at KFUO.org. I 
that fast. Very quick break. We're back at it. Here on on uh, Cross Defense on KFUO, I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Uh, I got a bunch of other theology stuff that ends up on the website, wolfmuller.co. It's W-O-L-F-M-U-E-L-L-E-R.co, including we're planning a trip to go to Spain. Oh, man, is this going to be great. We're going to go to Spain next June, June 4 to 14, and visit our missionaries there. We're going to spend a weekend in Seville, Spain, where we're helping start Lutheran churches. There hasn't been Lutherans in Spain since the time of the Inquisition until about 10, 20 years ago when we started doing work there and and um, and, pre- and preaching law and gospel there in Spain. And, and there's now some guys being shaped up as pastors, a couple of missionaries uh, from the Lutheran church that are serving there. So it, it'll be really great. We're going to study the book of Romans while we're over there. So... We've done a few of these trips. We went to Greece last year. We went to Germany a couple times a year before. We've uh, goofed around in Israel, and, uh, and but we're this is something different uh, to to go and see the work that the missionaries are doing there. And and it really, if it works, it's going to open up a lot of great possibilities to go and see the mission work that that's happening across the world. So if you're interested in that, uh, wolfmuller.co, there's a trip or tours button on there somewhere, uh, or you can go to wolfmuller.co/spain. 2019 and see all the information i'd love to have you join us and please let me know if you have any questions about that i want to we talked about epicureanism in the first segment and and but i want to dig in now to revelation 20 this is really what i wanted to talk about i think i've got like five hours worth of material so uh, we'll just we'll see how much we can cram in to the next 40 minutes or so because revelation 20 is a key key biblical text Revelation 20, especially the first six or eight verses of that text, are what talk about the 1,000 years, what's sometimes called the millennium, because milli, 1,000, annum, year. So Sometimes it's called uh, chiliasm. That comes from the Greek word for 1,000. And that, that time period, that 1,000 years, that millennium, is what determines what a person's view of the end times is. There's basically three, I mean, when you really start dicing it up, you can come up with five or six, but there's basically three major views of of the end times. And they all have to do with how you place the, the second coming of Jesus in relationship to this 1,000 years in Revelation 20. There's premillennialism, which teaches that Jesus will come back before or pre the 1,000 years. There's post-millennialism. It's not so popular anymore. It was, it was popular 100 years ago or so. Before World War I, it was pretty popular. But there's pre-millennialism, or sorry, post-millennialism, that says that Jesus will come back after a 1,000-year church age, a golden age where the gospel spreads and so forth and so on, etc. And then uh, there's what's sometimes called amillennialism, uh, th- this idea that, um, that we are living in the 1,000 years right now. Now, I'll just, to put all my cards on the table, is that what you put on the table, cards or chips? I'm going to put all my cards and all my chips on the table and tell you that I was, for a long time, a premillennialist. In fact, I was a specific form of premillennialism. I was a dispensational premillennialist. That means I believed that that God had two different plans. He had a plan for the church and he had a plan for Israel. I believe I believe that 
um, that the Bible talked about in detail all the things that would happen before the second coming, including the establishment of a one-world government, the Antichrist as a political leader who would place himself in charge and even present a sacrifice in the rebuilt temple in Israel. I believed in the secret rapture of the church, that is, that that Jesus would come halfway back to the earth and bring all of the Christians, zap all of the Christians out of this world to be with himself in heaven, and then he would initiate uh, seven years of great tribulation, three and a half of which would be peaceful and three and a half which would be terrible, after which Jesus would return again, set up his earthly kingdom. He would rule and reign from a rebuilt temple on David's throne in Jerusalem, that Jesus would preside over over temple sacrifices, over animal sacrifices in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And when that thousand years was was up, that the devil would be loosed from his bondage and there'd be another last great war. And after that, we would go into the eternal state. Now, that's what that's what I used to believe. And I, I do not, I hold that now as an unbiblical doctrine. That dispensational premillennialism is contradicted on probably every page of the New Testament. But I used to think it. In fact, I used to, I remember... There's a couple of embarrassing stories. Let me just pick one to tell you guys. I remember uh, one time uh, I got into my car to drive around Albuquerque where I was growing up, and I turned it to the Christian radio station, and it was silent. And I thought that I had missed the rapture, that I had missed the second coming, that I had missed the return of Christ, and that I was left behind now to suffer through seven years of trouble and tumult in, in this world. The station came on a few minutes later, and I was so fantastic. I mean, it's hard to even explain. It's kind of, I can laugh about it now, but it's hard to explain the distress that that sort of thing puts you under. My my wife, Carrie, then my girlfriend, I think we were not engaged yet. She had a, a car, and on the car she had the bumper sticker that says, uh, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. You remember that. We were rapture ready, waiting for this moment when Jesus would take the Christians up out of the world. And and so this is, is sort of in the American air. Now, I, I, I'm one of the things that I did not know, and I don't think most people who are dispensationalists realize, is how new of a doctrine or a teaching this is. You can find a form of premillennialism in the ancient church, really before St. Augustine, the church was kind of divided over it. There was a, a strong strain of the idea that Jesus was going to come back and set up a thousand-year uh, earthly kingdom and this sort of thing on the earth. There's back and forth something called historic premillennialism. But this idea of dispensational premillennialism has so many very brand new ideas. It's a very, It's a very new thing. But it is prevalent in our American culture. It's almost ubiquitous in American Christian theology. So when you turn on the Christian radio station, not KFUO, but you turn on a different Christian radio station, you'll you'll be hearing uh, you'll be hearing teaching uh, uh, about the end times and this is what it'll be like. Talk about Gog and Magog being the Russian armies. Talking about the the locusts in Revelation being nuclear helicopters. Talk about the Chinese army being predicted they're talking about the 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 chip we got a sign on the church door the other day someone had taped a letter to the door unsigned it was a typed up letter saying that the RFID chip was a uh, was the mark of the beast this sort of thing it's it's all it's just sort of all through american culture and it has to do with the predicting of the end as well and all of it comes back to this view of revelation 20 the idea that we're waiting for revelation 20 to happen that we are not there yet 
that Jesus still has to keep these promises, that the words here spoken in this vision of Revelation are not yet fulfilled. We're waiting for them to be fulfilled. Now, now, how, how do we look at the text? I want to read these verses and then uh, and point out a couple of things and then dig into it a little bit more. Again, by the way, you're listening to Cross Defense on KFUO. I'm, I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. And if you want to jump in on this conversation, uh, you can call the number 800-730-2727. If you've got questions or comments or want to say anything, you can tweet at KFUO Radio, and they'll check that in the studio. Here's what Revelation 20 says, starting with verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now this idea of the two deaths and two resurrections is really quite wonderful. It's a, it's a little bit of a riddle. I'm writing it down here so I don't forget to talk about it at the end. Two But here we want to notice two things. Number one, we want to talk about the 1,000 years. And number two... We want to talk about the binding of the devil. Because that, that is what Revelation 20 says is the mark of the beginning of the millennium. The, when, when does this 1,000-year uh, time frame begin? Well, it begins according to the text when the angel takes a chain and binds the devil and throws him into the bottomless pit. So we simply, if we want to know when the 1,000 years started, we simply have to ask, when was the devil bound? Does the, does the Bible ever talk in any other place about the devil being bound? And if we can find that and find out when that happened, or rather how that happened, then we can see what the, when the millennium or the thousand years began. But I want to first take up this question of a thousand years. People say to me, Pastor Wolfmuller, it cannot possibly be that we are in the 1,000 years, according to Revelation, because it's been over a 1,000 years since Jesus died and rose again, since Jesus went into heaven in the ascension. It says a 1,000 years, and you say that the 1,000 years has so far lasted for 1,900 and something-something years. Well, let's, I would like to let the Scripture interpret the Scripture there, because I am not interested in an allegorical interpretation of the Scripture. I'm, I am not interested in taking the claim, plain, clear meaning of the text and making it mean something different and convenient to fit my own interpretation. But I am interested in letting the Scripture interpret the Scripture, in, in, letting, the, in letting the Bible teach us how to read the Bible. So we have to say, does the Bible talk about a thousand or about a thousand years anywhere else? It turns out that a thousand is used in the Bible a lot of times, and almost all of, I would say all of them, at least that I know of, all of them are used um, as, a, as a symbol or an allegory or a teaching. So, for example, Psalm 50 says, 
that the cattle on a thousand hills belong to the Lord. Now, what, do, what, what about the cattle on the 1,001st hill? Who does that cow belong to? The answer is that cow also belongs to the Lord. The point is, when it says the cattle on a 1,000 years belong to the Lord, it means the cattle on all the hills belong to the Lord. All the hills and all the cows are the Lord's. A 1,000 means all of them. Or, or just to think about this, when the Lord is talking about the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, he says, I'll have... I will punish the the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but I will show mercy to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. A thousand generations. If you count the generations from Adam to today, you do not have a thousand generations. You're not even close. We have like something like 360 generations or something like that. I mean, it's not even it's not even near a thousand generations. So was God exaggerating was he not telling the truth that he'll have mercy on a thousand generations if there might not even be a thousand generations in the history of the earth no it, what it means is i'll be my mercy is overflowing my mercy is abundant my mercy is is it doesn't have any boundaries that's what a thousand years a thousand generations means and that's the same thing that is true when you look at a thousand years the phrase one thousand years is used twice in the bible uh, apart from Revelation 20, twice uh, previous to this text. And the first is in Psalm 90, this incredible, stunning in some ways, Psalm of Moses. Psalm 90 was is the oldest of the Psalms. It's the only Psalm that was written by Moses. H- how, why, why Moses wrote this Psalm, I don't, I don't know. What's the occasion of the Psalm? I don't know. It just shows up. Right there in the middle of the Psalms, here is a Psalm written by Moses himself, the prophet of God. And in that, Moses says that with the Lord a year is a thousand years is like a day. This Psalm is about the, 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 the finitude of human life. This Psalm is the Lord teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Our days pass away under your wrath. And if our days be a hundred and or if our days be uh, 70 years, they're full, or they end, and if they get to 80 years, they're full of nothing but toil and struggle. This is a this is a psalm of the of the Lord's greatness in comparison to our mortality. And in the midst of it, Moses says that for us a day is like a thousand. For the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. Now, why I have I have a guess, and my guess is that Moses knew that the longest person ever to live was Methuselah, who lived to be six hundred nine hundred and sixty nine years old. And you got to think that once you get to about nine hundred and fifty years, people start saying, "Hey, you think you'll make a thousand? Here he is, nine hundred and sixty. You think you'll get there?" 965 you think you'll until 969 and he dies and he doesn't make it and so a thousand years is the age that no person even the greatest of all the people who lived these long ages nobody made it to a thousand years and then moses says you know what a thousand years is like to the lord it's like a day take that human (laughs) take that mortal now peter picks up on that preaching of moses psalm 90 in second peter and he expands it and he says the lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness but his patience is long suffering not willing that any should perish so we so we have to remember that with the lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day now look what peter does there peter takes that up and he uses that phrase a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day to explain that the time of the lord's patience between the ascension and second coming of jesus 
I don't, I don't want us to get lost in the woods here. I don't want to get. I don't want to get to us to get confused in the detail. I want. To, I want you to hear this really clearly. That when Peter wants to explain why Jesus hasn't come back yet, he says, "Remember that a day is like a thousand years." And so what seems like nothing for Jesus seems like forever for us, seems like a thousand years. But it's a time of God's patience as he waits for all the people that he wants to save to believe in Jesus. Now, I think that when John, when John is given this revelation of Jesus, and, and especially this revelation of the thousand years, that he picks up on that doctrine from Peter. And he uses that 1,000 years, that's how it's used everywhere else in Scripture, he uses it to describe the time of God's patience between the ascension and the second coming. That's, that's why I think we can speak of this thousand years in this way as being an explanation of the time of God's patience between the second coming and his first coming. But we still have to deal with this last thing, and that is how can we say that the devil has been bound. I mean, look around. People say this all the time. Brian, look around. You, don't you watch the news? Don't you, don't you read the newspaper? Look, the devil can't possibly be bound. Surely this 1,000 years has to be in the future. Well, we're going to look and see if that's what the Bible says. But we're going to do that after the break. We got oh, this, oh, the clock. We got to go to the break. We're going to do that real quick. And stay with me. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller on Cross Defense. We'll be back on the other side to talk about the binding of the devil, if the Bible has anything to say about it, and what that means for Revelation 20 and the millennium. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for me. Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. This week on Issues Etc., we'll discuss the Fourth Commandment and the Boy Jesus in the Temple with Pastor Peter Bender. We'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday School lesson on the birth of John the Baptist foretold. And we'll get a review of the movie Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald with Pastor Ted Geese. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Illuminated Bibles and colorful journals have become popular as a new generation is discovering creative ways to engage with the Bible. But did you know, in the Middle Ages, illuminated Bibles were handwritten and embellished by scribes and artists who labored for years on a single manuscript. One of the most beautiful examples of illuminated Bibles is on display at Museum of the Bible, a book of ours, and Psalter of Elizabeth de Bowen, the great-grandmother to King Henry V of England. It contains the book of Psalms and organized prayers and readings from the Bible to be read at certain hours of the day. Illuminated books of ours became a way for ordinary people to imitate the spiritual practices of monks and nuns praying and reading the Bible. Engage with the Bible, this book of all books. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C.
All right. Welcome back to Cross the Fence. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We're trying to excite the imagination with the joy and beauty and delight and comfort and peace of God's promises and God's Word. It's just so fantastically wonderful. All the treasures that the Lord puts right below our nose in His, in his book. It's fantastic. We're talking about Revelation 22, and we, I, may, I made the argument before the break that, that the Bible uses 1,000 and especially 1,000 years as an indication of something else, an indication of completeness, especially as, as Peter, in Second Peter, takes up Psalm 90 from Moses and says that a day is like a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years is like a day, and that becomes an indication of the time of God's patience. In fact, I'd like to understand in the book of Revelation this contrast between these two time periods, the three and a half years of trouble and the 1,000 years of ruling and reigning, to in fact be concurrent with one another. That when we look at this life of trouble, we think, ah, three and a half years, no big deal. But when we look at the glory that is already ours by the promise of the gospel, it's, a thou- it's, a, it's this abundant completeness. But to finish getting there, we have to look at the text and say, when is this, when or how or why does this occur? That the devil is bound by a great chain and thrown into a bottomless pit. Does the Bible ever talk about anything like that anywhere else? And I'd like to suggest that, in fact, it does. In, in fact, in fact, Jesus tells a parable that uses this same exact language. It's in Mark and Matthew, and I, I think it's, yeah, it's in Luke too. It's in all three of the synoptic gospels. The parable, the very brief, very short parable of the stronger man. It's, it's when the Pharisee, Jesus was casting out demons. He was always casting out demons. Jesus was like a, was like a light that, that attracted the, the, the moths. He, he, the demons were just simply drawn to Jesus. And they, and it's, and it's, something because they're drawn to jesus they come to jesus and then they say why have you come here well they they came to him it's they're just they can't help themselves they're they're sort of there's this attraction to jesus that they go to to be destroyed and so jesus was casting out always casting out demons casting uh, casting them away sending them away rescuing people and so the pharisees see this they see what he's doing and they say well he's doing this by uh, by the prince of demons by beelzebub jesus is only able to throw out the demons because he himself has the greatest demon of all. And so Jesus answers this accusation like this, and I'm just going to look in Mark chapter 3. This is where this is the, is the briefest. This parable is expanded, especially in Luke. But, but I think it's important, especially for Mark. He, Mark puts this parable right at the beginning of the gospel to almost set the stage for everything that's going to happen afterwards. So Mark chapter 3, verse 23 it says, so, that, so Jesus called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. And then the parable. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. <laughs> That's so great. So Jesus gives us the parable and the picture of a strong man. So picture the strong man from the carnival, or picture just some huge. Picture the biggest dude that you know. Just have him in your imagination, and imagine him sitting there, uh, armed with a with weapons, sitting on a treasure chest in his house. And Jesus says, "You are not going to get anything out of that treasure chest." unless you first go through that man. 
he's standing there guarding his stuff so that if you want his stuff you're going to have to you're going to have to overcome him and tie him up so that you can get to the stuff in the treasure chest you're not going to be able to sneak around you got to you're going to have to assault him head on and jesus says that is what i am doing when you see me casting out demons when you see me rescuing people from the devil's kingdom, when you see me transferring people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light in, in, that is in me, when you see those things happening, what you are seeing is me binding the strong man, overcoming the strong man so that I can loot his stuff. This is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what Jesus has done for you and for me. We were the devil's goods. We were sitting in his treasure chest, and he was sitting on top of us, to overcome us, to keep us in bondage, to keep us in fear, to keep us as his own, to, to keep us in darkness. Until Jesus came and overcame the strong man and bound him so that he could steal his stuff. We are the loot that Jesus plunders from the devil. You are the bounty, the, the, the goods that were locked away in the devil's treasure chest that Jesus has pulled out to have for himself. It's a stunning picture. When It, it fits with how the, uh, Jesus will him talk about himself as the thief that comes in the night. Well, he comes to steal back that which originally belonged to him from the devil who stole it in the first place. He comes to rescue us from the devil. And, he, and to do it, he has to first bind the devil. And he does this by his death and his resurrection. Colossians 1 says that he, he triumphed over the principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them in it, that is, in the cross. Or John says, John 3 verse 8 says, For this reason the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now you say to me, look, Brian, okay, fine. The Bible might talk about how Jesus, in his death and his resurrection, has assaulted the devil, has, has fought the devil and stuff like this. But how can you say that the devil has been overcome? I mean, look around. Look at what a mess this world is in. Look at how much trouble there is. I, I, and I think we've talked about it before. I call that doctrine look-aroundism. It says that we can learn how it is with Jesus and the devil by looking around. But that is not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us to walk by faith and not by sight. And I think the clearest, the absolute clearest passage on this, which is wonderful, it's one of my most favorite of all time, is Hebrews chapter 2. Now, now we'll start with Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, that says, Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, and by the way, this is if you're just tuning in, this is Pastor Wolfmuller on KFUO. We've been talking about Epicureanism, Revelation 20, the 1,000 years, and the binding of the devil. It's a lot of stuff. In fact, it, it's, um, if you've missed any part of it or if you have to go because you got to work or you're pumping gas or driving around or whatever, this, the show's always podcast, so you can go to KFUO.org and you can download the podcast and get the whole thing. It's nice to listen to on podcasts. You can pause and write down the verses, take notes, etc., etc. Uh, so, so I encourage you to do that as well, uh, because this is a lot of stuff, There's, but it's, it's so wonderful. We don't want to miss any of it. Hebrews 2 says that just like we partake of flesh and blood, just like we are mortal humanity, just like, just like we are, 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 are born of, 
of Adam and Eve, so he partook of the same. Jesus was incarnate. He was in our flesh and blood. He became our brother in this way. And why did he do it? It says here in Hebrews 2.15, or Hebrews 2.14, the end, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus, through death, destroyed the devil. That's what the Bible says. Now, if you want to say, well, hey, I'm a look-aroundist, so I don't believe what the Bible says. I only believe I only believe what I see by looking around. That's fine. You can do that, but you should just know that what you're saying is not what the Bible says. When you, when you come to me and say that it can't be the 1,000 years according to in Revelation 20 because things are a mess, and you know that because you look around, I'm going to say, I want to believe the Bible. I want to walk by faith and not by sight. And in fact, in fact, this text in Hebrews 2 tells us exactly that. If you're looking at Hebrews 2, you just saw Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, but look back at the top, verse 8, where, where the writer quotes Psalm 8, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. That means God the Father has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. And then it goes on to say, for that in he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. We don't see it yet. We are not allowed to make doctrine by looking around because we do not see everything that is true. We, we do not yet see all things subject to Jesus. We do not yet see all things placed under his feet. We do not yet see the undoing of the devil's kingdom. We do not yet see the devil being bound and thrown into the bottomless pit. We don't see it yet, but we hear it and we know that it's true. We know that Jesus in his death destroyed the power of the devil, that Jesus in his ministry, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, has bound the devil. We know that Jesus has triumphed, that he has undone the works of the devil. We know those things because the Bible tells us. We might not see it in our lives or in our world, but we know them to be true because the Bible tells us. Now the picture, to work quickly here, the picture is like lightning and thunder. There's a gap between what you see and what you hear. Remember how this was when you were a kid and you'd see the thunder and you'd count one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three, to see how many miles away the lightning was because the light traveled faster than the sound? Well, there's a gap between what you see and what you hear, and that is true for the gospel. There's a gap between what we see and what we hear, but with the gospel, we hear it first and we see it later. The gospel, the promise of the forgiveness of sins, the announcement of the victory of Jesus over the devil, the, the, the glory of the blood and the resurrection of Jesus and his suffering and his atoning sacrifice, all of this we hear in the thunder of the gospel. And on the last day we will see in the lightning flash of the second coming. And we live between the time of hearing and seeing of hearing and seeing the Lord's triumph over death, of hearing and seeing the Lord's triumph over the grave, of hearing and seeing the Lord's triumph over sin, over your sin, the hearing and seeing of the destruction of the devil. We live in the time in between, and we got to know it. Hebrews and John and the gospel want us to know it, that we're living in between this time when the devil has already been bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations. That's what, after all, Revelation 20 says. I saw a great angel coming down with a great chain in his hand, and he took a hold of the serpent, the devil, and he bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. That the devil has been bound for a very specific purpose 
so that the gospel can go forth in all the world. So that people in every corner of the world can hear the good news that Jesus has died for their sins and rescued them. And the devil, the devil cannot stop it. He cannot stop the gospel going forth. He cannot stop the preaching of the forgiveness of sins. He cannot stand in the way of it. That's why we live in this glorious time of the thousand years. Now, to, to picture this, I want you to try this with your imagination. You've seen these, these pictures of, um, of, the, of the earth from a satellite at night. And they're, and they're really cool because you can see where the cities are and where the people are and where they're not. So, like, the darkest place in the United States is this wilderness down in New Mexico. We used to go camping down there. Uh, it's, and it's, it's just dark because there's no one for miles and miles around. And it's great to go to those places because you can see the stars forever. They go, they go right down to the horizon. And then you could see all the population centers. You can see all the, you can see the, like you can see the coastline on the East Coast and West Coast of the United States because there's so much light right along the ocean. And then in the ocean, it's just pitch black. So you see these satellite pictures and you know, you know where the people live and you know where they're not. Now, I, I want you to think of a spiritual satellite picture. Like that there's a light, a little light everywhere in the world where the gospel is, is preached and believed. And think of that picture before Jesus. Think of that picture in the time of Abraham, where there's a tiny little light there in Uz and going over to the promised land. Or, or think of that light in the time of the dispersion, when there's a little light over there in Babylon with Daniel, and a little light over here in Egypt and Alexandria and, uh, with, uh, with Jeremiah, and a little light in, in, in Jerusalem. Or think about that at the time of Jesus. There's a little flicker here and there in Bethlehem and Nazareth, and hardly any lights at all. And then think of that light at the death of Jesus. There's a handful of people who believe, scattered, I mean, just gathered together in an upper room in Jerusalem. But then all of a sudden, 50 days later, that light starts to spread and stream to every corner. And it's in Asia, and it's in Rome, and it's in India, and it's in Africa, and it's all the way into Europe, and it spreads and it spreads. And think about that light now, that there's people who believe in Jesus and are confessing him all over the world, and that that light continues to grow. The devil wants us to believe the lie that that light is diminishing, but it is not. It cannot because Jesus continues to sit on the throne and to see to it that we can hear and believe the joy that he has in his victory over the devil and the forgiveness of sins. This is important that we understand that we are living in this 1,000 years and that we are partakers of the first resurrection. That is, that we have been raised again in baptism so that we can never die. That we are already partaking of the eternal life that Jesus promises, that Jesus has won for us by, by his death on the cross. We are already partaking in that by faith. We already partake of his victory over the devil. We already partake of the victory of Jesus over death and sin, and all this stuff, by faith now, and soon by sight. So we can rejoice in this text, Revelation 20, in this thousand years, because, dear saints, those, those who are ruling and reigning with Christ, those who are sitting on the thrones there, that's you, and that's me. That's the baptized. That's the joy and the authority that Jesus has for us. That's a victory he's won for us. It's the crown that he's given to us. That's his, his blood brought to us, given to our name, so that we would be righteous and that we would live before him forever by his mercy. Whew. That's some good stuff. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller.
who has run out of time here on Cross Defense. Thanks for sticking with me for the hour. Again, this show's podcast every week, so if you missed any part of it, you can go and listen to the podcast, subscribe to that, listen every week. If you want to get some more, there's some more YouTube, some more radio stuff, all that at wolfmuller.co. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. God's peace be with you. Listening to Cross Defense, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314 996 1518, or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at KFUO.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.